Hello and welcome to this episode of the Art and Design of Sci-Fi and Fantasy, Mystery and Horror. Uh, today I speak with animator Tom Saito, who has uh, worked on uh, Disney films, uh, Little, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast. Um, he has an extensive uh, animation career. Um, and we talk about his book, which was published in 2006, but is still still a very interesting book and, and relevant. And we discuss a lot of uh, Hollywood animation history, um, a lot of it focused on Disney and the 1941 strike, but we talk about other animation uh, strikes around that time, um, a lot into just general animation and Hollywood labor history, and, and a lot of sort of behind-the-scenes kind of stuff that very interesting, kind of uh, scandalous, I guess you could say, uh, for some people, very important for others, people who uh, were trying to get better uh, labor conditions for animators and that sort of thing. And we also touch on uh, a little bit about Star Trek movies and a whole bunch of cool history and uh, digital animation, just a whole lot of stuff. So definitely, if you're into animation history, Hollywood history, Disney history, animation in general, uh, you'll like this. And don't forget to visit chrisalvarez.com or theartofsciencefiction.com for more great interviews, photos, and articles. If you'd like to financially support this podcast, you can do so with a donate button that is located on those pages. All right, well, thank you and enjoy. I'm speaking with Professor Tom Cito, author of Drawing the Line, The Untold Story of the Animation Unions from Bosco to Bart Simpson. Thank you for speaking with me. Thank you for having me. So first, can you tell me how you, uh, well, tell me about your um, prodigious animation career and also how you ended up writing this book? Well, um, I've, um, I started in animation about 40 years ago, and um, um, I was a regular uh, professional in the Hollywood studios, so uh, I spent a lot of time working at the Walt Disney Studio, uh, Warner Brothers, Hanna-Barbera, you know, Fox, all of them. Um, and, and I was kind of fortunate enough that when I began my career in the 70s, a lot of golden age artists who had, you know, done their best work in the 30s and 40s were, uh, were at the, the time of their retirement. So we had a chance to overlap a little bit. Mm. So, you know, like, like any old, old soldiers, you know, sitting around a campfire, you would swap stories with one another. And you'd hear these wonderful stories about you know, Hollywood back in the day. And, uh, uh, you know, you'd sit, you know, with a beer, and some of these old guys would go, you know, someday somebody should put this stuff in a book. <laughs> like, oh, okay. <laughs> and um, one of the things that struck me was that was that a lot of people who went to the, the, the Disney strike in 1941, um, even in their old age, were mad at one another. They still were angry at one another, you know. And I thought, wow, this thing happened like over, you know, almost 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, these, you know, these people are in their 80s, you know, they're facing the end of their lives, and they still harbor this, this, this rancor. And I thought, what, what created this kind of passion? Because when you read the official studio of Hollywood histories, it's almost like, oh, Walt had a wonderful family, and then a couple of Reds tried to spoil the plot, and then World War II happened. Mm-hmm. It's like, wait a minute, for the people who went through it, it was the most important thing in their lives, yet it's, nobody's talking about it. Mm-hmm. So I decided to you know, tell their side of the story. 
Okay. Um, well, now let's talk about the book. How do you uh, how do you break it down, and what do you focus on? Well, I'm I, I particularly focused on the animation artists, you know, the animation industry. I mean, um, animation is kind of funny in that it's kind of an industrialized art form. You know, I mean, uh, you know, a regular you know painter or something sit in a garret with a brush and make you know and and make masterpieces. You know, you know, crazy Van Gogh would run out the field with his canvas and 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 make you know works of genius. Um, animation requires crews. You know, it's an industrialized art form. You, you you need a staff of like dozens, if not hundreds, of people to make, to to uh, you know make a really good movie. And um, and and one of the reasons why Hollywood kind of stepped to the fore, uh, including Hollywood animation in the in the silent era, was that while other parts of the world uh, did these sort of ateliers of small filmmakers and all, Hollywood industrialized the process. We turned it into dream factories. Where people clocked in and clocked out, mm-hmm. you know, and and like any kind of industrialized uh, uh, system, eventually the uh, the worker bees to start to feel like they're being taken advantage of, and and you know, and and they want to seek to collectively bargain, mm-hmm. and uh, this was the case throughout the thirties. Um, another thing I found uh, was that a lot of people who would write specifically Disney or animation history would tend to divorce the studio from the rest of Hollywood and treated like they're like the Never Never Land some sort of bubble mm-hmm. when you when you, when you talk to the artists who were there uh, you, you know after work they would go to a, a bar or a club or a dance and talk to their friends at the other studios and, and in the late 30s early 40s everybody was talking about industrialization and unionization and um, and the studio heads were reacting much like the, the people in charge of other you know, companies like uh, General Motors or, uh, you know, RCA or something like that, you, you know, mm-hmm. they were fighting back and resisting any kind of unionization. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it, it was a, it was that tug of war basically from about 1935 when the Roosevelt administration signed the, the Wagner Act saying all working Americans have the right to collect the bargaining. Um, uh, Hollywood more or less organized, completely organized by about the end of 1941. Like by the end of the, like just at the dawn of World War Two, mm-hmm. that's when most of the backstage of Hollywood, you know, uh, uh, you know, organized and uh, the studios recognized the Writers Guild, the Directors Guild, and you know, and the Animation Guild. Mm-hmm. So, but the book does cover from that period to modern day, more or less. Yeah, 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 yeah. Basically, it's like it's like you know, that 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 middle period. That was like sort of the golden age when a lot what when the, the sort of, uh, you know, these large works of, of um, uh, uh, you know, a Hollywood film was being done. But yeah, I also have to take in, um, you, you know, the, the period in the 1960s when the, when the movie studios yielded more to television and to more lower budget stuff. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, um, outsourcing and globalization. And then, uh, you know, the Hollywood blacklist. And then, and then finally, you know, the digital revolution. Because, um, in the 1990s, you know, everything changed because uh, before 1990, uh, if you made an animated film, you were using pencils and paper and paint and, and celluloids, you know, you know, acetate sheets. Mm-hmm. And uh, by 2000, everything was digital. You know, like everybody's using, you know, uh, tablets and styluses and everything is now digital. Uh, I think it was like just last year, uh, I'm sorry, earlier this spring, 
the, the company Cartoon Color, which was was the main company that made animation paint, uh, announced that they were suspending production hmm. because nobody uses this stuff anymore. Wow. So do you focus solely on U.S. studios, or do you get into any foreign studios? Um, I mostly I focus on, U- on U.S. studios. I think the, the, um, I talk a little bit about the uh, overseas uh, studios, but um, the, the problem is, like, you know, like, there's a very healthy animation industry in France and a very healthy animation industry in, in Japan. And, and they have their own unions and their own, you know, you know the, the, there's a British union as well. Um, so they went through their own, you know, uh, thing. But um, I tend to really just to focus on on America for now. Mm-hmm. So, um, considering the the span of time, is there can someone um, see certain piece of animation uh, that look different than before because because of union action, because of people being switched out or, or processes being changed or anything like that? Um, well, uh, I think the big change uh, uh, that people can see is that it, it, uh, is that um, a lot of these strike leaders in the Disney strike of 1941 uh, um, were were driven out by by Disney after the strike. They formed, they got together, and formed their own company called United Productions of America or UPA. Mm-hmm. And, and and UPA, besides being a, a rival studio presented a stylistic change and challenge as well, mm-hmm. which is that uh, uh, Walt Disney had basically, you know, you know, made animation push more towards realism, more realistic looking action, so water looks like water and smoke looks like smoke and there's acting and, and you know, and performance, and uh, trying to be as realistic as possible, kind of culminating in Bambi, which was, you know, a very, very realistic looking film for, mm-hmm. for the time period. Uh, a lot of the artists working there uh, challenged that notion, much like the way the Impressionists, you know, challenged the, uh, you know, the art in the in the nineteenth century, and say, you know, who says the natural end of everything should be realism? Why can't we be more mannerly and stylized? Mm-hmm. And, and, and UPA began doing a more graphic sort of style that a lot of artists sort of like lean towards. You know, they were influenced by modern masters like Mondrian and Mirbeau and uh, the Mexican muralists like Diego Rivera and Sigueros. And um, so a lot of the artists in the 1940s sort of like gravitated towards that. And it was kind of an exciting movement. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Disney never really never really liked that style very much. Um, uh, um, one of his artists, Lloyd Kimball, created a film called Two Whistle Plunk and Boom, which, which uh, you know, was in that sort of very graphic, you know, 1950s style. And, and and Disney actually was out of the country on a on a promotional thing while the film was being completed. And the legend is when he he came back his first day at the studio, he went into the theater to see the week's dailies, and 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 the rough cut came up without any credit. Mm-hmm. And he watched the whole thing, and then he looked at at, at Lord Kimball, the director, and said, "Aren't you glad we don't do crap like that?" <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
So, well, you, you know, today we we kind of make fun of it, you, you know, or lampoon that style with with uh, things like Samurai Jack and Dexter's Lab and things like that. That's that's done like an, almost an homage to that kind of fifties uh, graphic look. Mm-hmm. How many different studios do you would you say you touch on in your in this book? Bunch. Let's see. So, so, yeah, I talk about Fleischer. I talk about um, John Randolph Bray. Uh, Bray was the first guy in, in the silent era to, um, to really sort of define what we call the production pipeline, which creating job classifications mm-hmm. that later became careers for people. Um, Terry Toons, uh, I talk about it, talk about UPA, talk about Disney, um, uh, Hanna-Barbera, uh, you know, uh, so I, I feel like about a dozen studios. Mm-hmm. Now, would you say the book is more, uh, say, labor history with, you know, that's about about the animation, or is it more animation history and it talks about how labor influenced, if, if that question makes sense? Um, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'd say it's, it's kind of animation history, but also how, 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 yeah, how labor influenced uh, you, you know, you know the creation of animation because it's a, again, it's a kind of a thing that people kind of discount. You know, they don't they don't really talk about, you know, um, you know the the political activity or uh, you know and, and and labor activity of a lot of their favorite artists. You know, like like you know Chuck Jones, the great Bugs Bunny animator, was very pro union. Mm-hmm. Uh, like uh, also Bill Melendez, who directed the Charlie Brown Christmas was very pro-union mm-hmm. you know and, and it's funny because when, when once I started delving uh, into this background you start to see that sort of a back back door of Hollywood that's not talked about because uh, it, you know most of the media is, is you know is corporate media and they don't like to talk about things like workers rights and stuff you know so mm-hmm. so you find out things like Joan Crawford was a vice president of, of, of the Screen Actors Guild and Boris Karloff and Gradwell Marx were very pro-union. Jimmy Cagney was very pro-union. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, it's a, it's a kind of thing that's like it's never really kind of discussed, except in, you know, and in, in, in the side. So mm-hmm. I thought that it was time to really do to 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 do a focus on this sort of uh, on this uh, um, portion of, of their lives that's not often talked about. Would you? Um, and this is a, a generalization, of course, but. Um, since animators, I would think, are more of a sort of a intellectual, uh, creative bunch compared to, say, you know, people might think a stereotypical person in a union is, you know, a manual laborer. Um, uh-huh. yeah. would, you, would you say there was a different approach to unionization among animators in any way? Yes, I think so. Yeah, yeah, because, because, um, uh, uh, animation folks think of themselves as artists, you know, you, you know, who are working, you know, um, uh, you know, in fact, and in the 1940s, it was even more so because a lot of the, uh, a lot of the artists in the golden age didn't train to become animators. Animators was a career you kind of fell into. Uh, uh, uh they trained to become, you know, um, formal arts and then, and they wound up, you know, embracing this, this, uh, this, uh, you know, you know, funny little career. Um, Early in the 1920s, there were a number of Disney artists who wouldn't be photographed in front of the studio because they didn't want it to get back to their parents, you know, who said, we spent all this money on art school for you and you got a job on a switcher company? (laughs) 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 So, 
unionization, it, it becomes difficult. But then you think that, you know, well, symphony orchestras are unionized, ballet troops are unionized, you know, Broadway dancers are unionized. It, it, you know, th there is a way to approach it. You know, writers, I mean, you know, can you think of a more, uh, um, you know, individual or libertarian, you know, you know, uh, in, in, in the small, you know, you know, uh, 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 you know, sort of profession as as being a writer, but yet you know, the, the writers' guild is a very strong guild here in town. Mm -hmm. Before I turn towards uh, how you did your research, are there any other issues in the book you brought up that you haven't mentioned yet that you might want to? When it comes to Disney history in, in particular, some uh, uh, some people have a very strong connection to the Disney Corporation as a as a as a social. Um, sort of ideal, and, and and I mean, you know, I can understand that because you know, I myself was a Disney animator on a lot of famous movies like Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and I always found it funny that how uh, there's there's a there's a there's a, um, a, a spirit or, or there's a reputation to the company that the other companies don't have. You know, like nobody cares if Universal is irreverent or nobody cares if Paramount is that kind of plastic, but Disney is. Disney. It's a certain thing. And there's always going to be some people who just hate if you make Walt Disney anything less than Mother Teresa. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and, you know, and Disney was a, uh, uh, I talked to a lot of people who interacted with Walt Disney personally, and they said he was just a man. You know, he, he, he liked the smoke, he liked the drink after work. You know, he was a regular guy, but he created this image for himself as Uncle Walt, you know, mm -hmm. the friendly, everybody's favorite, you know, friendly uh, father figure. Mm -hmm. And um, the studio used to call that the franchise, mm -hmm. uh, meaning meaning that, you know, when you think of a facial tissue, your mind instantly goes Kleenex. Mm -hmm. And when you think of a photocopy, your mind instantly goes Xerox. Mm -hmm. And when you think quality family entertainment, your mind goes Disney. Mm -hmm. You, you, you know, and it's, that, that's a very, you know, it took decades to build that reputation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't want people to come away with the idea that this book is just, you know, assaulting that reputation or throwing mud at Disney. Like, you know, there, there have been books that are just out now, patchy jobs, where they're just trying to focus on the negative. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I kind of treated the whole conflict in 1941 as like, almost like sort of a, um, a Greek tragedy. Mm -hmm. That like if everybody's stuck to their convictions, this this inevitable bad result is bound to happen. And I and I think Disney was a good man who just got sort of he kind of like went down a bad path at that time period. You know, he was turning forty, and his mother just died, and, and and all the success that he had had initially on some of his movies had kind of you know um, turned for the worst at that point. And and then suddenly his artists are demanding a union. Mm -hmm. So, so I think he kind of lashed out emotionally, uh, that, that in a way that you know he might have regretted later. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely. Uh, I'm a big Disney fan, and I uh, I love Disney history, and I admire what Disney has done for entertainment and education. Yeah. Um, but you know, I'm not afraid to see that 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 kind of stuff. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, it, you know, the. Uh, uh, um, one of my mentors was an old animator named James Culhane, mm -hmm. who did a lot of the uh, animated a lot of the Seven Dwarfs in the, the High Ho March, mm -hmm. the little song. And um, he also did a lot of work on Donald Duck. And and he told me, you know, uh, you know, uh, when he was an old man, he said he said Walt Disney is a great man. Walt Disney was a genius. He goes, if you liked it, if he liked you, he was a warm friend. If you crossed him, he was a 
mean son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, when he died, he left no competitors. Mm -hmm. You know, there you know, was nobody anywhere near what Disney was doing at the time of his death. So let me ask you what you used, um, what resources you used to write the book. You mentioned interviews, and um, what, what else did you use, gather for this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of it had to be first-person interview because very, very little was written down about it. Um, I also used uh, uh, the, the, um, the Screen Cartoonist Guild. Um, the Hollywood Cartoonist Guild has an archives at Cal State University, Northridge. Mm -hmm. um, also, UCLA Film Archives, they have a very extensive archives, including a lot of unpublished memoirs of some of the labor organizers. And Dave Fleischer, Max Fleischer's brother, mm -hmm. who was, an who was, a, who was a, a top director and, and, and the development executive at, at Fleischer Studios. Um, there are some, uh, you know, uh, unpublished manuscripts of, uh, of their recollections. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, you have to do a certain amount of digging because there's not, again, there's not a, there's not a lot there specifically about, about uh, labor history. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and like I said, you know, I was fortunate enough that I knew a lot of the, uh, the strike leaders personally, so I could kind of get there. You know, and I was good friends with Roy Disney. So, I mean, you know, I, I know the Disney family very well. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I sent them a copy of the book. They liked it. So, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> which helps. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, oh, I, I want to ask, so how many interviews did you end up doing, would you say? Oh, I'd say probably about 75. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it took me about seven years to write the book, but, you know, also, you know, you got to make a living, too, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, I imagine. So if, if, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, so I'm sure the way publishers are, you know, all that information you collected didn't make it in the book, so you must have an, an awesome uh, just notebook of, of cool information that, you know. That oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. What's, what's funny is that, what's funny is that uh, um, when, I, when I first got the manuscript in, when my publisher read it, yeah, they, they, they wrote me back to go, this really happened? <laughs> they go, yeah, it really did. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, you know, the, the you know the, the you know the, the mob was involved in the Communist Party, and uh, mm -hmm. you know there was all kinds of stuff. I mean, you know, you know, labor history in the '30s and '40s was a pretty wild you know period. I mean, what's amazing about the Disney strike was that it was one of the few strikes without violence. Mm -hmm. I mean, back in in those days, you know, the General Motors strike or whatever. I mean, even in 1937, there was a Hollywood studio strike. And there was like fist fights in the street. You know, people were going at each other with with what axe handles and bats and things like that. So, mm -hmm. you know, the fact that the Disney strike was comparatively, you know, free of that kind of uh, that kind of violence was was, uh, was was an achievement. Yeah, yeah. There was back in the 1910s and 20s. There was just a huge amount of of labor violence. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so so am I right that there is a bunch of cool stuff that didn't make it into the book that you have in your notes? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, there's always stuff that, you, you know, because you can, you, you know, generally it's like when something happens, you try to get corroborating sources, you, yeah. know, you know, and, and sometimes like, and, and some artists in their old age will, will sort of, you know, uh, gild their own performance or, their, or, or, <laughs> or they'll be inaccurate about something. So you try to cross-reference Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, you know, if you if you heard something, so so, and, and there's always some stuff where they just say, "Oh, you can't print that." I'm like, okay, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know, you know it's, a, it's a compromise. You know, 
was it? Uh, Alfred Hitchcock once said that if we get half of what we ask for, we'll still be ahead. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> so what part of the research uh, was most enjoyable? Um, I think the first person stuff was fun. It was, it was a lot of fun. And, 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 and so certain, uh, you know, and when you really start to uncover this backstage Hollywood stuff, that's kind of fascinating because again, it's like showing a, 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 a side of, um, of a lot of, um, uh, people whose careers you admired or whose, whose, you know, reputations you cherish and then to see the sort of different side of them, you know, is, is rather fascinating. Mm-hmm. And um, and and you try to imagine yourself, you know, like what would you do, you know, that day? Like, like mm-hmm. uh, I found like the single most dramatic day was uh, I think it was like May twenty ninth, nineteen forty one, the first day when the picket line went up in front of the Disney Studio, mm-hmm. and and a lot, and even though everybody had been talking about it for months, when it finally happened, everybody was like just a little bit shocked, you know, like as you as you got to work in the morning. You suddenly have to decide, okay, uh, am I for Walt or am I for the union? Mm-hmm. And it's like, and it's like, you know, like if, you know, this could potentially could make me unemployed during the Great Depression, which, you know, now in retrospect, you see the depression was ending. Mm-hmm. But at the time, people weren't sure, you know, to, to them, the depression was still happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the, so the ramifications of, of, uh, you know, what might happen to one's career was was quite daunting, mm. and and everybody had to make that choice. And um, I heard you know stories about you know artists like standing outside the gate for about ninety minutes arguing with each other what to do, mm-hmm. whether to cross or whether to or whether to stay out on the picket line. Mm-hmm. And and it's and I, and I just found it kind of kind of fascinating to hear that. You know, a lot of the people who went back to work. You know, like who, who um, you know, like in, in labor terms, you say they're scabbing. But um, the people who decided to go to work, you know, even politically, some of them are very left, whatever, like, you know, but they just felt like they couldn't, they couldn't risk, you know, uh, you know, what might happen with their families, you know, or, or they, they just some of them worried, like, you know, if the studio goes down, you know, like if, if the, uh, if the, the strike might take the whole studio down, then everybody would be out of work. So there, uh, there was a lot of, Stuff running through people's minds on that one hot summer, you know, you know, you know, well, it was a spring, uh, you know, morning. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is that stuff stayed with people the rest of their lives. Yeah. It, 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 you know, which I, you know, like one of the strike leaders, Arthur Babbitt, was the was the uh, artist who created Goofy and mm-hmm. Geppetto, and he was talking about Ward Kimball, the artist who created Jiminy Cricket. Uh, you know, uh, cr- uh, even though. Uh, Ward considered himself very progressive. Even Captain Sinclair, you know, fan and all. Uh, uh, you know, he, he, you know, which today is like being a Bernie Sanders fan. So, um, uh, you know, he crossed the line, and went to work, and 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 Art, you know, like as much rancor as Art had for other artists, he, he always he always pitied Ward. He said, I, "I know it probably hurt him more than anything else." It, it, you know that that that, that he lived with that. So p- people back then, they didn't have health insurance back then the way uh, we do now, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, nothing. Yeah, it, you know, it, you know, it it took forever just to get social security passed. Yeah, you know, that was a miracle. You know, and then um, it, it, you know, the screen credits were kind of a joke. You know, it, it, you know, that's why it always said you know Walt Disney on everything. And so you imagine that Walt Disney drew everything himself. You know, <laughs> and, and so people don't get those kind of uh, credits. 
Mm-hmm. Um, also, um, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, uh, one of the things that uh, in my research that surprised me was was how much of Hollywood up until 1941 was doing a six-day work week. Hmm. Sat- Saturday was regular time. It was not. It was not a day off. Uh, you know, not until 1941. Uh, the 40-hour work week was passed by, Cong- uh, by Congress in 1913. Mm-hmm. Yet into the 40s, you know, uh, the studios were still insisting you come in on a Saturday mm-hmm. and, and do at least a half day. It's like a 46-hour week. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then if you had a problem with coming in on the weekend, you would talk with Uncle Max or Uncle Walt, and he would let you work Thursday to like 11 o'clock. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and so this is before overtime. You know, then when you're on a deadline, then you put in you know, all, all the extra time as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, so that's the kind of thing to wrangle people. And then, you know, the studios write to just basically fire anybody on a whim. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's a famous story about about uh, um, uh, about Walt Disney firing a guy who who told a dirty joke, mm-hmm. and and it, and it wasn't even directed at Walt. Walt just happened to be walking by as the two guys were talking to one another. Yeah. And then he fired him. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, uh, uh, you know, like um, the interesting thing, the fascinating thing about Walt Disney was that he was such a control, a control. Uh, I won't say control freak, but he was so he was so into um, the image that he was creating. Because there were a lot of studio heads, you know, and and, and, and your studio heads didn't act like you know America's watching them to see how moral they are. You know, I mean, nobody cares what Louis B. Mayer was doing or mm-hmm. or Harry Cohen and Columbia was doing. Right. But but Walt, Walt created this image, you know, and 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 it was nothing for Walt to walk up to one of his single a, um, animators and say, you know, you've been fooling around around a lot lately. You know, you really should settle down and get married. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what? It's none of your business. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh... You know, but, but it was that, and again, too, so, you know, um, Walt was a, was a big fan of Henry Ford. You know, he admired mm-hmm. Henry Ford, you know, and the, the, the Horatio Alger concept of you, you, you self-made man. You know, you start with nothing and you work really hard and then you, you become successful. It's that Protestant work ethic. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and he had come to a lot of rough and tumble. He'd been cheated by producers. He'd been cheated by backers, robbed the personnel, uh, plagiarized, and yet he survived this whole thing to be on top. So he really felt like, uh, you know, it, you know, nobody's going to tell him, you know, how to run his studio. Mm-hmm. Now, there wasn't any any anything they did in animation back then that would have health effects, was there? Uh, no, it's just it's just overwork. You know, you, you know, I mean, you get eye strain, you get carpal tunnel, but you know, nobody knew what carpal tunnel was yet. You know, mm-hmm. you get sore wrist. You know, after a while, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, it, 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 the business just requires many, many man hours, like sitting at a table. You know, mm-hmm. you, you know, you know, staring into a light, and um, uh, um, you know, so, so it, in, in terms of physical, you know, uh, your, your physical threat, you know, no, it's it's, it's not not that kind of business. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, it, you know, yeah, it's just it's just putting in the uh, just putting in the very long hours, you know, and just doing a lot of work, you know. And um, you know, and uh, the, the artists by and large were very proud of what they were doing. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're very happy they're making these kind of things that children around the world love. You know, you know, and you know, adults as well. It was a, it was the saying in the early uh, 1930s. There was a slogan about you would go up to a theater and go, "What? No Mickey Mouse? 
<laughs> what did you find that was most surprising in your research? I was surprised that that uh, that there was a, there was a, a, a for a little while at one point that the mob got involved. Mm-hmm. You, you, you know, there never was the sort of mafia infiltration in 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 Hollywood the way there was in like New York and Chicago and you know some of the big eastern cities mm-hmm. where the mob was like very big in in city government and stuff. Um, the the mob uh, here it made some inroads and then through unions and all because because basically. When the first unions were starting to form in the 20s and 30s, the studios amped with muscle. You know, they would hire vigilantes. They actually hire off-duty LAPD. They like sort of beat up strikers. You know, huh. and, um, and 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 so so the, so the unions felt they needed some muscle. So then they wound up, you know, you know, sort of like reaching for the underworld guys. And um, what's interesting was that the the way. Um, the way, uh, like one of the reasons why the mob was kept out of, out of L.A. so successfully was that the LAPD, in a way, was almost even worse. <laughs> you know, that's where you have movies like L.A. Confidential and things mm-hmm. like that, where um, they, had a, they had a group called the Hat Squad, and, and basically these detectives would hear through their contacts that some big mobster was, was coming into town, you know, to relocate, and they would meet him at Union Station. And take him up into the hills, like Mulholland drives on the top of the hills, and they basically work him over and throw him off the cliff. <laughs> wow! <laughs> you know, and you know, but they also had a group called the Red Squad, mm-hmm. which was, which was if if, uh, if there were union organizers or or people complaining about segregation or civil rights or anything like that, that they would go beat them up as well. Mm-hmm. So so there was this kind of rough component there, and. Um, there was a, there was a guy named uh, Willard uh, Willard Bioff. His original name was Morris Biofsky, mm-hmm. but everybody called him Willard Bioff. And uh, he was sent out from Chicago by the by um, uh, Frank Nitti's you know gang mm-hmm. to to sort of infiltrate the Hollywood unions. And a lot of Hollywood studios used him like they used Mickey Cullen because he was muscle. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 he actually tried to insinuate himself into the Disney strike, which is kind of which is kind of uh, you know unique. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, eventually, uh, Bioff was, was sent to Alcatraz around 1940, and he turned government witness. Mm-hmm. And um, and then around 1959, he was living in in Arizona, and he went out to his truck in the morning, turned the key, and exploded. Oh. And so obviously somebody remembered, you know. And uh, mm-hmm. they said that when the when the when the police, uh, fire brigade showed up, they found Mrs. Uh, his wife, Mrs. Bioff, was in a, it was in a lemon tree. Uh, up with a ladder and they mm-hmm. said oh the poor woman her mind must be broken with grief mm-hmm. and she says no it's just Willie had a really nice diamond ring and I think I saw that finger fly up into this tree so. <laughs> that's an LA story <laughs> so um, I can imagine that Walt Disney as angry as he might have gotten might not have wanted to to go that direction with the, the violence just because of the image at a minimum, yeah. the image that he cultivated. Yeah, 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 yeah. There was that. You know, it never, like I said, it never got to that level of, of like, uh, again, you know, a couple of years later, in 1945, um, there was a big Hollywood, uh, there was a big studio strike. Uh, the, the animators weren't as involved in, but I, I, I kind of touch on it, uh, uh, which you call the War of Hollywood, which was, which was basically two rival unions trying to control the backstage of the live action, you know, you know, uh, 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 studios. And, 
they were like, yeah, it was like a riot, you know, in front of the Warner Brothers studio, which was like 3,000 film workers battling the Burbank police and turning over cars and they had to turn hoses off and whatever. Mm-hmm. So it got, it, it got really insane, you know, but the, there were a couple of animators, in, you know, uh, you know, there at the time, but, um, but it, 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 it didn't involve the, the animation world as directly because we had just gone through, you know, the big strike in 1941. And then, and again, too, um, World War II was happening, and during World War II, there was a, like a labor peace where they, where basically the, 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 the American Federation of Labor and the National Association of Manufacturers had agreed that there would be no major labor actions, you know, you know, during, for the duration of the war. Mm. But by summer 45, everybody felt like, well, it's only a matter of time, you know, before, before Japan's defeated. So mm. it's time to start, you know, talking about this stuff again. Yeah. That Warner Brothers, uh, Riot that you mentioned, me. I wonder if that inspired the blazing saddle scene. <laughs> it could be. It could be. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because wasn't that in, in that very area? And, and and again, too, it's very funny to hear about the different people involved. You know, where where like you know you know um uh, 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 you know Peter Laurie stayed out. You know you know and and you know you know um, Bogart was quietly very liberal and everything. You know you know Bogart was a lot like Rick in Casablanca. Mm. You know, like he, he was, he was politically liberal and he just didn't make a big deal about it and kept it quiet. Mm. Um, but then, but then like, uh, one of the, uh, one of the lead producers, his secretary was, Aunt, uh, was Ayn Rand. Mm. <laughs> and, and she was like, oh, you got to cross. Uh, don't let these Bolsheviks take over. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. That, yeah. I could see that. Yeah, yeah. Um, was there a question or issue that was particularly difficult to come to a conclusion on, or maybe you never got a satisfactory answer about? Um, no, see, I, I think, I think, uh, well, I mean, there's always going to be sort of he, he said, she said things, you know, like, um, one of the things that happened in, 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 you know, my own time around, uh, 1979, 1980 was, um, there was a lead artist at, at named Don Blue. And and Don was like was being groomed to be like one of the leaders of the Disney studio. But he he quit the studio in seventy nine, taking about a third of the staff with him and formed a rival company called Don Blue, you know, you know, Productions. Mm-hmm. And he made um, uh, films like uh, uh, you know The Secret of Nim and American Tale mm-hmm. and Land Before Time. Uh, you know, you know, just some very popular movies. But he had given Disney his first, uh, the studio his first real competition in decades. You know, you know, because you know, there had been all, they really didn't have like many rivals. You know, on the big screen, uh, mm-hmm. television was sort of, you know, there's a lot of stuff on television. But Disney sort of ruled the whole game. You know, you know, when it came to feature films. And um, what's interesting about Don is that, is that there, there were artists who were still were mad at him for leaving. And, 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 and then the artists that are, are, are really very passionately in, in, you know, in favor of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, you know, so he has, he has a lot of detractors, a lot of fans, you know, you know, like, uh, Brad Bird, you know, the, the famous, you know, um, current director did the, uh, uh, Incredibles movies and stuff. Um, you know, he had a falling out with, with, uh, with Don very early on when they were trainees together. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and then there are other ones that are very pro. So, so you never really get like sort of, a complete picture because it's it's uh, a lot of it. A lot of the opinions are changed by people's personal animosity or, or you know or, or idealization of, the, of these people. Mm-hmm. I always thought actors and actresses were the uh, very emotional ones. It sounds like the animation community <laughs> is pretty. Uh... 
pretty intense. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Robert Zemeckis called us actors with pencils. And that's that's pretty apt. Yeah, that's true. Oh, man. Um, Was there anything you discovered that had an emotional impact on you, either positively or negatively? Um, I think uh, uh, you know. I always kind of uh, I always kind of like that um, that you know Babbitt, you know, who was the leader of the uh, of the forty one strike in his old age, got a got a very a very kind letter from Roy Disney. Uh, you know, uh, basically after years and years of animosity, just saying you know you know you know we're aware of, of how important you were to the studio. And how much you know, you know, the studio, uh, you know, the studio meant to you, and 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 just basically saying thank you, you know, and and Art was really touched with by this, and he kept his letter in his wallet for the rest of his life, you know, it, you know, it, it didn't meant that much to him, mm-hmm. uh, it, you know, because of a lot of them, uh, you know, when they left Disney, it was sort of like a bad divorce, and they're still sort of angry about the, you know things. Um, again, Bill Melendez, who directed Charlie Brown Christmas. When he left the studio after the 41 strike, he said, I'm leaving Disney. My career is over. Mm. And actually, it was just beginning. Mm. <laughs> you know, because he had a very minor role at, at, uh, at, at, at Disney's. And, mm. and, and he did much better when he was outside, you know, you know working at Warner Brothers and then for his own studio. Mm-hmm. Um, and another one I was impressed by was um, uh, during the Fleischer strike in 1937, which was a pretty, a pretty big strike. There was a young cartoonist there uh, named, named, um, named J- Jacob Kurtzberg, and and he was working uh, as a minor assistant on Betty Boop and Popeye cartoons. But he didn't really feel very satisfied by it. He felt like he, he wanted to do something else. And and when the when the uh, strike happened at Fleischer's in '37. He got fed up and said, "You know, you know, I'm going to follow my first love, which is I want to work in comic books." Hmm. So he left the studio and changed his name to Jack Kirby. Huh. <laughs> you know, and then of course he became like the the top artist at Marvel Studios and invented Hulk hmm. and the Fantastic Four and a lot of the a lot of the characters that we go now to look at giant movies about. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Kirby was involved with with their creation. Oh yeah. So, considering the book was first published in 2006, and what what has the book done, and what do you hope it will continue to do for for readers? Well, um, one of the things that I was uh, very satisfied by, or, or I, I, you know, I, I really was touched, was uh, was when the families of some of the older artists um, uh, who were involved in the in the labor scene sent me letters to say thank you for restoring my father's reputation or thank you for pointing out all the important things that my my father and mother did uh, you, you know uh, uh, for Hollywood and and that made me feel very good that I was able to restore a certain amount of uh, uh, you know a, a, a piece of the Hollywood story that had sort of you know fallen off and been forgotten mm-hmm. uh, you, you know uh, so so uh, you know, and I think there's still a message which you know, even though even though everything's digital now, there's still large groups of people who work for for a weekly paycheck. You know, and uh, you know, you look at these giant movies that go by, like the Avengers or Guardians of the Galaxy, or something, and you look at those Roman legions of names going by, and think every one of those names is a career. 
Mm-hmm. And they have a house and a family, and they worry about retirement. Uh, you know, they worry about health care just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, and you still have people in charge who make a lot of money and a lot of other people who just work for a weekly check. Mm-hmm. And as long as that, as long as that situation, there's going to be a need for something, something like a, like a union. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the, the, uh, uh, one artist by themselves, you can't fight a uh, you can't fight a corporation by yourself. Mm-hmm. But right. uh, but uh, uh, um, I found you know with well, the unions that a union is sort of like uh, it's, it's sort of like an umpire in a baseball game or or or, or a, a judge or something you know in a sporting event. Mm-hmm. It just keeps the playing field level and keeps everybody like you know behaving themselves. Right. And it, and it's needed. Yeah, you know, people think they people think it, it's not needed, but uh, it's still very relevant today. Mm-hmm. Yep. So yeah. you you said that the book. I think you said it took about seven years to complete. Um, yeah. Do, do, were there any issues apart from the time it took in finishing the book or getting it published? You know, finding a publisher for it. Well, uh, you, you know, um, I think. Uh, a problem with any kind of Hollywood book is you always have a problem with image rights, hmm. and, and you know you always can have an issue of, of somebody's uh, you know um, like if I want to use a Disney still, if I want to use you know images from a Disney film, I have to you know clear it with a Disney company, and then you know the legal departments, the various studios want to read you know you know to make sure you're not saying anything bad about their about their studio. Hmm. So, so there's a lot of oversight and a lot of scrutiny and things like that. And sometimes things get held up, and 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 Disney's in particular is very sensitive about the about the image of the studio being just so. So, and so that can take a while. Um, and 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 then, uh, you know, I learned a lot of things about 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 image rights. You know, like like if you notice on the cover of the book. Um, there's a there's, there's an illustration. If I if I use the photograph of Walt Disney, then I have to get permission from the Disney family and the Disney Corporation. Mm-hmm. But that is not a photograph of Walt Disney. That is a painting, right. and the painting is is of a man with a little mustache. And right. <laughs> I'm not saying it's Walt Disney. <laughs> you can think it's Walt Disney. Mm-hmm. I didn't say that. Right. <laughs> you know, so that's the kind of thing you have to kind of go around like like if you create an illustration. It's different than if you actually use an image, you, you know. So, so you have to be very careful where you're using, using your imagery, you know. So, like, um, you know, press photos. Uh, um, one thing aren't around anymore. Um, I remember Leonard Malton told me about was lobby cards. Mm-hmm. Was that you know in the old days of theaters you'd have those stills, you know, they called lobby cards. Right. Lobby cards were considered public domain, like newspaper. Huh. So you you don't have to get permission to use a lobby card. As far as getting a, a publisher, right? As far as getting yeah. a publisher, was there any issue there? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I didn't, uh, uh, I didn't try too hard with with, um, with 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 a commercial press. I found universal, uh, you know, university presses are a little more amenable mm-hmm. to something that's more, uh, uh, you know, uh, scholarly like this. Mm-hmm. And then also, again, too, you know, you know, the the, the studio legal departments aren't as critical. Of, 
of a, of a university press because it's seen for educational purposes mm-hmm. rather than uh, you know exploitation. <laughs> you know, like a, like a couple of years ago, there was a there was a book came out called Walt Disney: The Dark Prince, and right. and, and, yeah. and it had a lot of negative stuff in it. A lot of you know you know um, uh, you know just like Richard Schickel's The Disney Version in 1967 mm-hmm. was like one of the first book that was very uh, had a, was very critical of Disney, you know, and and um, and if you flip through those, you'll notice there's no images. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, so so um so the studios are very sensitive towards uh, are you trying to make money by by you know you know uh, taking a hatchet to to our reputation, yeah. and you know and basically I, w- I didn't want to do that. I just wanted to tell the story of of you know how um, you know, animation artists dealt with working conditions in, you know throughout the his uh, you know Hollywood history mm-hmm. um so 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 I found that could be better done with a university press than with a commercial press mm-hmm. okay now now I see apart from this book you had a successful book in 2013 about um digital animation I believe yes um and do you have another writing project uh, going on, or? Yeah, I, have, I'm, I actually have three I'm working on right now. So um, I'm writing a history of the animation renaissance. Uh, you know, basically in the '80s and '90s. You know, mm-hmm. when animation kind of came back. You know, like it's a, you know it's like you know when I when I graduated school in 1976, um, uh, the theatrical releases of feature animated films were maybe two a year. Mm-hmm. There'd be like the Disney film and it'd be one other one. Now for the last 10 years, it's been about 29 a year. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about two a month. You know, I think, I think there's a Chinese home opening up today right now, you know. Um, uh, and, and, and television, uh, there was nothing on prime time. Everything was, and, uh, everything was, was, um, Saturday morning cartoons. Mm-hmm. Was to deal with it. You know, they call it the Saturday morning ghetto. You know, you, 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 know, as a kid, you got up around six or seven, got your pre-sweetened cereal, talked to some of the TV, and you watched cartoons till noon. You know, mm-hmm. that was the that was Saturday morning. Yeah. But there was nothing at night. You know, mm-hmm. and if you told me in 1975 that 15 years in the future, the most popular show on television is going to be a, a animated sitcom with a yellow kid with a jagged head. Yeah, I'd say you're out of your mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nobody, nobody saw that coming. You know, you know that that was going to happen. Mm-hmm. So, so I want to write a bit about that. Um, the, the computer animation book, um, uh, movie innovation, was that at the end of the Union book, um, I, 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 I talked about the digitalization of, of film production and how every and how that had evolved. You know, like what, what was the source of that? Where did it come from? Mm-hmm. And I found the chapter getting bigger and bigger. And finally, one of my editors said to me, you've got a new book here. Yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? and, and, and here, too, is a fascinating subject, you know, because I'm not a tech person. Mm-hmm. I don't really write tech, you know. Mm-hmm. But I found the, 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 uh, um, the, the, the inventors and the pioneers fascinating. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, in the 1960s, when you thought of computers, you thought of these, like, James Bond, death machines, you know, something that Blofeld was sitting in front of, you know, petting his cat, mm-hmm. and it'd be these big giant computers that were going to, you know, you know, uh, nuke the world. Mm-hmm. But, the, uh, but there were people at that time looking at those things going, let's make art. Mm-hmm. You know, let's use these things and make cartoons. Mm-hmm. And that just seems insane, you know, but now it's just such an established given, you know, movies like The Incredibles and Toy Story and Ice Age, 
have done so well. Mm-hmm. And the thing I found fascinating about the uh, about that uh, when I was doing the research is that it, it, it doesn't follow on a linear track. You know, you can't point to one Walt Disney. Like people, when they think about computer graphics, if they think at all about it, they think, well, George Lucas brought the lamp and John Lasseter the Pixar popped out mm-hmm. and they made Toy, Toy Story. Mm-hmm. And actually, it's like there was a multi-track thing going on where it's like the, the military put a lot of money in the 60s into the flight simulation. Mm-hmm. You know, like they wanted flight simulators. So when you turn the controls of your of your plane, the, the, the landscape in front of you has to move in real time to your control. And at the, in the 60s, that's a very complicated algorithm. You know, you know, for, for a computer to do. Now it's like nothing. Mm-hmm. But then around 1980, uh, the Microsoft Corporation had a had a, a, a flight simulation program that, that they trained pilots on, mm-hmm. and they released it as a video game called Flight Simulator. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it did really well, because everybody loved it. You could fly a plane. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, so there, was, there was the military involved, and there was uh, academic, academia, there was experimental filmmakers, there was motion picture visual effects people, there was all these different trends all working on separate tracks till about the late 80s, mm-hmm. so when things started to combine. There's so like plot lines in a Russian novel, mm-hmm. you know, they all started to kind of like intertwine with one another. Mm-hmm. So I just found all that stuff fascinating. Yeah, that- and, and, you know. mm-hmm. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, uh, I've interviewed a fair number of sci-fi and fantasy artists and the... Um, the, the ones who are a little bit older, some of them brought up, you know, in the late 80s and early 90s, they were sort of torn between, you know, do I go into this digital, you know, art stuff, or do I stick with traditional, yeah. like, what, what's going to happen, what's going on, you know, so it's... Right, right, yeah, yeah, it is, it is, it, it is kind, of, kind of fascinating, you know, like, uh, 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 like, one great story was um, after... Uh, 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 shortly after um, uh, uh, they had done Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, you know, with Ricardo Montalban, and, 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 and it had some very early computer graphics in it called the Genesis Effect, mm-hmm. which like a first breakthrough done by a number of artists. Mm-hmm. There, was a, there was a small uh, uh, computer graphics house that was trying to get some work out of Paramount on the next Star Trek movie. Mm-hmm. And what they did is that they took a frame of of um, of the Enterprise from the movie, and they they used it to to virtually build a, a new Enterprise. Like they they built an Enterprise in in uh, virtually you know you know in their computer, and you could turn it any angle. And they brought the Paramount people in, and um, and they said, look, you know, here's the Enterprise. You can turn it. You can make it any you can film it from any angle. You can, you can stretch it. You can speed it up. You can break it into pieces. It's 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 just you know a virtual enterprise. And, and um, uh, the producer told me uh, they lost the contract when one of the Paramount people said, "That's beautiful. Can I hold it?" <laughs> he says, "No, you can't hold it. It's not real. It's virtual." And he goes, uh, "I want to take one home." You can't take it home. It's, there's no such. It's virtual. It's not there. And she said, it, everybody looked at each other like someone had farted in the room, and and they were just totally confused, and they just walked away. <laughs> and they were like, "What the hell just happened?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I've I've met a few people who've worked with Paramount who would uh, not be surprised at a story like that. <laughs> I mean, uh, one of the things she told me, like, she said, uh, she, she 
said, my final revenge is right now, I can walk out on the street, stop somebody, and say, you know what CGI is? And they go, yeah, computer graphics. Mm -hmm. It was in 1985, nobody knew what the hell you're talking about. Mm -hmm. it, 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 it was science fiction, you know? And, mm -hmm. and the thing I find fascinating is the guy who wrote the very first software for a computer to draw lines instead of numbers, mm -hmm. it was a fellow named Ivan Sutherland, and he's still alive. He's in his 80s. Uh, he was he was just giving a talk at the the, the last SIGGRAPH convention. But I, I love the fact that in one lifetime, we've gone from a few glowing lines on a screen mm -hmm. to, um, to, you know, Avatar and, uh, you know, all these gigantic movies, Pacific Rim, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just basically, in a, you know, in about a 35-year, 50-year lifespan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the um, one, uh, 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 you, you know, one of my other favorite stories that uh, I enjoyed from this was in 2001: Space Odyssey, the Kubrick film. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful, a beautiful movie. I mean, you see it on a big screen, 70 millimeter. It still holds up. You mm -hmm. still lose yourself in it. It's gorgeous. But oh, yeah. uh, you know, there's no computer graphics in it. I mean, I mean, the only. They, you know, there's filmmaking techniques there that they would have, George Melies would have understood from 1909. You know, it's very yeah. traditional filmmaking. Mm -hmm. It was just done so well that you don't notice. Um, there's one scene where the HAL computer is telling the two astronauts um, that the, the satellite dish on the Discovery is going to fail and you need to go out and take a look. And, and, and as they're looking down at the screen, there's a wireframe of the, of the satellite dish turning 360. Mm -hmm. And it's a perfect, you know, um, it's a perfect, uh, you know, uh, 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 vector image, you know, of a, of a wireframe uh, construct of a satellite dish. Mm -hmm. The way that was done was, it really is made out of wire. <laughs> a, a miniature guy, a, a guy who's skilled at miniatures, made a, 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 a sculpted a satellite dish out of chicken wire, sprayed it white, mm -hmm. put it on a record turntable, mounted a horizontal still camera, and turned it incrementally while taking photographs. Okay. And then they took all the photographs and shot them under an animation, you know, uh, rostrum camera, hmm. and, then, and, and, and then put in video distortion, and then that was matted onto the screen. Hmm. And when you look at it, it looks like a computer. But, hmm. it's, but it's completely fake. <laughs> wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hmm. So where can, so your books are found on Amazon. Um, yes. What, is uh -huh. there, can people find, do you do any kind of writing or social media stuff that people can maybe follow? Uh, yeah, yeah, I blog around and, uh, and uh, you know, I have my own site and um, I also have a um, blog that I wrote called Dead Dishes and Animation Magazine. Um, actually, the book that I'm working on now that I'll also do next spring is uh, just kind of a crazy thing. I'm writing a cookbook. Hmm. It's kind of weird because um, when I started my career as an assistant, I got to assist Grim Natwick and Grim Natwick was the animator who created Betty Boop <laughs> and he also was the lead animator on Snow White mm -hmm. and uh, he was an octogenarian and all, but Grim was originally from, uh, from Missouri and he was very proud of his own personal chili recipe. So I had Grim Atwood's chili recipe. Mm -hmm. And then I found out Walt Disney had a chili recipe. Mm -hmm. And then I found out that the Japanese director Miyazaki likes to cook ramen for his crew. Uh -huh. 
uh, you know, then Bill Hanna, Hanna Barbera, used to like to make barbecue for his team. Mm. So I was talking with one of my publisher, and I said, I think I could do a cookbook. And they're like, that's a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's going to be called Eat, Drink, Anime. And um, I've got about 80 recipes now. I've got like 10 Oscar winners and, uh, and about five Oscar nominees. And um, it's just their personal recipes. Yeah. You know, and and, uh, and and it's funny because it's everything from uh, like I've got three people who are actual chefs, you know, who like actually you know left the uh, left the film business and became cooks. Mm-hmm. And so I have like gourmet recipes, and then I have um, simple things like like uh, there was a director who did like death metal videos, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and 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 he had a recipe uh, uh, for for uh, whiskey and pickle juice. Hmm. So, so you take a shot of rye and then a shot of pickle juice. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I could see that. I could. That book would be very popular. I can see that. Yeah, I can see yeah, it already. Yeah, I, yeah. I think like every. You know, it's funny. It's like a lot of people are just are just having fun with it. You know. Mm-hmm. You know. I just got a. Uh, I just got a recipe from Michael Giacchino. It's like the Oscar-winning uh, composer. You know, of uh, from Avengers Two and much of other films. So mm-hmm. uh, it's it's fun that people that are all just jumping in and volunteering the recipes. So, oh, yeah. so that'll be out that'll be out next spring. Okay. So. Now what's your website? You said you have a website? Yeah, yeah, it's just Tomsito.com. Okay, so, so that's T O M S I T O dot com. Yes. All right. Um that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts? No, I think uh, you know, it's it, it, you know um, Animation, you know, it's it's it's, it's a fascinating business. I mean, it's been a, it's been a career for me, mm-hmm. and and it's funny how it's uh, you know it comes from the Latin animas, you know, to give life, mm-hmm. and 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 it is funny that like we, we kind of dedicate ourselves to create this sort of synthetic people, you know, like you know a character like Bart Simpson, you know, Bart Simpson is not just the writer. You know, James L. Brooks is not just the director, David Silverman. It's not the designer, you know, you know, Matt Groening. It's not the voice, Nancy Cartwright. He's all of those people. Mm-hmm. He creates Bart Simpson. Mm-hmm. You know, just like Bugs Bunny or Ariel the Little Mermaid is alive in our minds. Mm-hmm. You know, we know who she is or he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes we know them better than our own brother or sister. But there, it's an artificial construct, mm-hmm. and and when when you should participate in something like that, and be in on the creation of that type of character that endears itself to people, mm-hmm. it's an amazing feeling. You know, it's it's uh, uh, it, you know it's really very exciting, and uh, and to, to just sort of shed a little light on the on the incredibly creative men and women who who. Uh, do this day by day and everything is a privilege that I've been uh, 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 you know, able to do and I'm very grateful for it. Cool. Well, thank you very much. Okay. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening. One of the best ways in which you can provide feedback for this podcast is to rate me on iTunes. Uh, please give me a good rating if you like this. Or uh, feel free to give me a bad rating if you didn't, and I'll use that feedback to hopefully make this a better podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram under Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi, on Facebook under Chris Alvarez WLC, on YouTube under Chris Alvarez WLC, and on Twitter under Chris Alvarez WLC. 
You can also get more information on my website, chrisalvarez.com. Please remember my name, Chris, does not have an H. So it's C-R-I-S-A-L-V-A-R-E-Z.com. Thanks for listening and keep imagining the future.